Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, it's a regional reporter roundup. A near washout for one sandwich beach and a wish list for Providence school kids rallying for ethnic studies. Plus, Boston City Councilor Tito Jackson proposed shoveling help for seniors in Boston, but there was a strange response to a similar program in Rhode Island. Later, biking in Boston is a year-round safety issue. Just as ardent cyclists are saddling up to brave icy streets, the Massachusetts legislature is getting into gear and considering new bike safety laws. But first, joining me, freelance journalist based in Rhode Island, Philip Isle. He joins me from a studio in Warwick, Rhode Island. Hi, Philip. Hi, Callie. Also with me, editor-in-chief of the Cape Cod Times and executive editor of the Cape Cod Media Group, Paul Pronovo. He joins me from his newsroom in Hyannis. Hi, Paul. Hello, Callie. And also, not last, <laughs> but maybe best, she'd say, Arnie Arneson, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. former Democratic <laughs> legislator and host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on New Hampshire's WNHN-FM. She joins us from New Hampshire Public Radio. Hi, Arnie. Hi. I'm Paul. I'm starting with you because we have on this show talked about Town Beach and Sandwich uh, over many, many months. It might even have been a couple of years. The struggle of that beach to battle beach erosion um, and looked like they were on the right road, got the funding, pumped the sand in, and then that storm hit. So tell us what happened. (laughs) Oh, boy. I know. It It could not have been. Worst timing. And uh, just for those who, who haven't been following, as you said, Kelly, it's been a long, strange, winding road. Um, the town of Sandwich, uh, which is bordered by the Cape Cod Canal, has long complained that the, the Army Corps of Engineers run canal um, has robbed their beaches of sand. Basically, the way the jetties are set up, sand gets piled up on the, uh, the off-cape side uh, in, in the Scusset Beach area and never makes it to the on-cape side, the Town Neck Beach area. So the residents and town officials have been fighting for a long time to get uh, the feds to take responsibility. They haven't really done that yet. Uh, they uh, have launched a, a lengthy and, and I think years in the making survey to see if exactly what the issue is, although frankly any aerial ph- photo can tell you exactly what it is. Um, but in the meantime, the Army Corps said, look, we have to dredge for the canal anyway. We have these dredge spoils. If you want them, you're going to need to put a couple dollars behind it to do your own work. But it's something that you can have, and it's you know sand that you can replenish your beaches. So in total, this was a project, $2.9 million. And the town went through the process of, of making it happen. It was you know a lengthy process, but what was interesting... Uh, Sandwich, which is notoriously stingy about spending, said, absolutely, we need to spend this money. And so they did. 
the sand uh, through the winter was was uh, dredged and then replenished on the beach. And just last week, they finished the grading. And I think it was uh, probably Thursday that we had a photo of what we're now calling before, um, because <laughs> oh. it was a beautiful beach um, stretched for a long, long way. And uh, then, of course, the winter storm came in, the winds blew, erosion hit again, and a, a very large bite of, of the nearly 189,000 cubic uh, yards of uh, sand were taken away. Um, they don't know exactly how much, but um, it's certainly more than a grain or two. My goodness, I mean, this is just, I can't decide, and you maybe you weigh in here, is this a metaphor for the whole beach erosion thing? Uh, we should be careful to say exactly. this really is about the beach and no homes were involved in this scenario anyway. But for a lot of people, they're saying, okay, you know, we have to just accept the fact that this erosion is happening and that replenishing the sand at a great cost maybe is just not wise. Yeah, and, and, you know, of course, the old saying is shoveling sand against the tide, right, yes. yeah, which is uh, considered yeah. a fool's errand, and that's exactly what they did here. Um, having said that, they do have to do something, and, and while no homes were affected here and, and wouldn't be for some time, um, they needed to build back this bridge because if, if the tide keeps flowing in and, and, you know, reshapes the land in that area, um, after not too long, next stop is sandwiched downtown. And that wouldn't be good. So they they needed to do something. Um, they do still feel that there's enough sand in place that it will be fine. Um, they're planning, uh, and they had been planning all along, uh, to plant beach grass, which helps stabilize the dune area. And ultimately, they think they're going to, I mean, they've known all along that this was sort of a short-term solution. Ultimately, they think it'll be enough to get them to the next step, which is the long-term solution. Can I ask a question? Because I, I keep thinking about, um, as I'm in election mode, you know, Governor Christie had to go to New Jersey because he had to make sure he could monitor the storm. And one of the things we kind of recall from Hurricane Sandy is that, you know, we know hurricanes are awful. We expect erosion with big storms, all these things. But what has changed because of climate change is that we've actually seen sea levels rising. So that as we, you know, put together all the old plans that used to work, do the old plans work? And I'm sure the Army Corps of Engineers must be looking at issues like, you know, both erosion, but also what's happening as a result of climate change. And doesn't that scare Sandwich a little bit, that every time you think you've got something, it worked for yesterday, but where are the sea levels today? Well, and that's a fair point. And and obviously the beaches are being reshaped all the time, and and not just Sandwich. I mean, we all know this. Any coastal area uh, faces erosion um, constantly, uh, the, the beaches are being remade all the time. And, and down here in, in my neck of the woods, you know, it's Sandwich, and then it stretches up to Barnstable, uh, although mm-hmm. all that sand that just washed off Sandwich is probably washing onto Barnstable right now, so they're very happy. Um, yeah. And then all the way around the coast and, and onto the islands, uh, I know Nantucket uh, in, in the Sconset area has had a lot of erosion issues. Uh, out there, though, you've got multimillionaires who are willing to spend their own money and, and create a solution. So uh, that's a good thing. But it's a fair point. You know, with sea level rise, it, right. it's an increasingly um, important issue. And, and you do think, uh, while it's only incremental now, that's uh, over time, it's definitely going to become uh, a major, major concern and something that uh, uh, folks down here are, are definitely looking at. Well, uh, Providence, right on the beach there, too. <laughs> yeah. Philip Isle. I mean, this is a, this is a, a tale that uh, needs to be uh, told 
around the country, certainly in our area anyway. Yeah, the latest news out of Rhode Island uh, isn't so much in Providence. It's that um, there was a study done in Newport that found, according to a state rep down there, that some 17 percent of that city, one of our major tourist destinations, one of the most important cities in the state, uh, 17 percent of the city, according to this new report, is in a floodplain. That's about $3.8 billion of potential property at risk as these waters continue to rise and you know, you use the word incremental, Paul, and as over time, incremental becomes kind of existential for places like Newport, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Newport yeah. and and Sandwich, and even Providence eventually. And yeah, here in the Ocean State, uh, we take these things very seriously. And maybe if the other arguments don't work uh, to get people acting, to get people thinking about long-term solutions, is numbers like three point eight billion dollars of potential property in a floodplain in one of our biggest cities. So. It's scary stuff. Can I just put an exclamation point on this? And you know who's going to convince us that this is really a problem? It's not going to be the scientist. It's probably not going to be, you know, what happens in your front yard because you're losing some of your beaches. It's going to be the insurance industry that has Mm. to insure this. (laughs) You see, no, that's going to be the teacher. Money teaches. Okay, nothing else teaches. Science doesn't teach. School doesn't teach. The Republicans can go into complete denial. What will teach us will be the insurance industry that basically says we're either not going to insure you or the cost of insurance is so prohibitive, you better think twice. Well, I I, I think that's an excellent point. I will just say one thing that I did learn from from this, and that is that beach grass makes a big difference. So the naturalists (laughs) who are saying, you know, sometimes you got to go back and look at what worked in the past and how we preserve certain things. But they couldn't put the beach grass out until later. So, you know, here we are. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out because I I didn't know that. And apparently it's made a big difference in some other areas. Moving on. Um. The snow not only impacted the erosion on the beach uh, in Sandwich, Phillip Isle, uh, it uh, <laughs> uh, raised for many people anticipating a snowfall <laughs> in Providence, a program to help seniors shovel out. Now, believe me, I think this is a great idea, but it kind of got all messed up by the presentation at the press conference. And somebody, you know, now an executive has lost her job, and I don't know what the status is of the program itself. So could you please explain? Yeah, this is actually uh, a couple miles down the road from Providence in Cranston. Uh, you know, so often weird, embarrassing, funny stuff happens in Rhode Island, and we're used to hearing about it, uh, and I'm used to laughing about it. But this one, you know, just kind of takes the cake. Uh, earlier in January, uh, the uh, senior services executive in Cranston, Rhode Island, held a press conference announcing a new program for local teenagers to help shovel out seniors. Fair enough, right? The mayor was there. There were kids there. They brought in some snow from the local ice rink, and they had a good photo op. Uh, about a week or so later, the I-team at uh, our local NBC station points out that the apparently the one seemingly senior citizen standing in the background for this press conference was not, in fact, a senior citizen, a little old lady, but a middle-aged man, a bus driver from Cranston, who had been dressed up with a wig, with lipstick, with a name tag that said Cranston Senior Home Resident uh, for for optics purposes. I mean, the, the headlines... Because they didn't have enough seniors, I guess. Or I don't know why they couldn't go get well, one, but I'm just there's, asking. <laughs> there are so many questions... Why they couldn't find seniors is one of them, certainly. Um, but this became a story. The the senior services uh, uh, executive, Sue Stenhouse, immediately stepped down, uh, went national. One headline, which I liked from the Associated Press, 
middle-aged man dresses as old woman for officials photo op. Um, <laughs> and once again, people around the country are laughing <laughs> at Rhode Island, and I'm laughing at Rhode Island. Can I will I say, them? I, well, I, I just want to say one thing. Oh, you'll hear why. You'll hear why. You'll hear okay, why. Okay, yes, Keep let's going. hear it. I no, just no, no. want to First say that all, uh, go on. Af- afterward, nobody really could give a straight answer. The mayor, who was recently a GOP candidate for governor, declined to comment. He hasn't commented since, as far as I know. It really just kind of remains a mystery as to what the heck happened here. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about political theater, please? Let's. Let, I want to have a <laughs> yeah. little reality therapy here. And I'm going I'm to tell a really quick story. Uh, a friend of mine lives next door to a house in uh, Hollis, New Hampshire. And a couple of years ago, there was going to be a Bush event. And it's a very nice, fancy-schmancy house. A big truck rolled up in front of the house. You know what came out? A tractor. All of a sudden, big bales of hay. You know, things that you would see on a farm. And it was a faux farm. And it was because he wanted to stand in front of a tractor with, you know, bales of hay. And they're looking at going, what the heck is this? Welcome to the world of political theater, okay? This happens all the time. And frankly, what they intended to do was a good thing. The fact that they didn't roll out a little old lady or a little old man, but they put someone on with a wig, uh, has nothing to do with what they wanted to do. Frankly, they were going to use that little old lady or that little old man as political theater anyway. It wasn't like they were going to be real in this conversation. They just wanted to add texture. I'm looking at what they wanted to do. I applaud it. Whatever the backdrop (laughs) is, we have green screens now. Excuse me, who's on TV? Can we talk about the green screens? How faux is that? So I hate to say it. I'm going to defend it because I think you're all being kind of jerky here. And I don't care. What was the intent? The intent was to help old people out from snow. Was that still the intent? Yes. I would say a couple things. There's a line between political theater and dishonesty, first of all. And this was dishonest. And this was also public officials playing dress up. Uh, on on like taxpayer that. time, <laughs> and it was so brazen. I mean, people get political I theater know. to some extent. I don't have a problem necessarily with a tractor. I do have a problem not only with, again, them playing dress-up, but it, they could have given the kind of answer you just gave afterward, but they haven't. And I this agree is just you. kind That's of lingered. You know, uh, it, if you're not offended by the fact that this happened, and I think there's ample reason to be, I'm offended by the fact that the former you know, a, a viable gubernatorial candidate who was two feet away from this man dressed up as a woman hasn't explained what the heck was going or on. Or apologize. And, Paul, let me just right. say, I know you know we're down on the Cape. There's plenty of seniors that would appreciate snow help and I'm sure <laughs> would have agreed to stand right next to and say, hey, come shovel out my house. Well, and think about this. I mean, what I want to add is how lazy can you be? Uh, oh. I mean, truly, even even this, this gentleman's... Um, Name tag reads Cranston Senior Home Resident. I mean, no. they didn't even bother to make up a name, and, and they didn't give him a sex. Just, just <laughs> yeah. so lazy, well, and, and, and and I think lazy. And and the problem is, and you you put your finger on it, Callie. The program is worthy. So why would you even risk having a distraction like this and and possibly uh, undermining what could be a very good program because people indeed would love to, I mean, seniors would love to be hooked up with young folks who are willing to go out and shovel. I I mean, remember the old days where kids just walked the neighborhood and they made a couple dollars by shoveling out their neighbor's driveways? Well, those days are gone, so you need a program like this. So why don't you just go 
get someone, and by the way, grandma or grandpa, who's going to be in the background, they might be political theater, but they're going to be thrilled to exactly. death. Exactly. Well, well, okay, we're done here, Arnie. Right, <laughs> it's right, just right. too sorry, weird sorry, for words. About Call me later, boys. Call yes. me later. Philip, uh, I, I do want you to tell me uh, what happens to huh? the program, though. I, I hope that it continues. Yes, exactly. Despite all of this stuff. Well, what has certainly happened is the program has been exponentially overshadowed by these shenanigans. That's I can say that right now, so but sad. yeah, I will keep you so posted. Sad. Okay. Moving on, uh, last Last week, uh, the uh, the uh, Senate committee in um, New Hampshire uh, is supposed to look at uh, this marijuana legislation. It's recreational marijuana, Arnie, as oh, you pointed out to us. Uh, Vermont, I'm sorry. Right, 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 uh, and right. uh, it, the issue is that it seemed as though it might go through. They were, but there were changes that were that were uh, presented by Senator Dick Sears. Um, and I thought some of them were interesting. He wanted to move a quarter of the tax money brought in by this uh, the to the general fund and to bar mm-hmm. people from growing the plant at home, which I think is going to be a little hard, and beef up penalties for adults who sell drug to minors, which, as everybody knows now, in Colorado, that's become a real lightning rod issue. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I guess there's a couple things here. It looks like it's going to go through, and that has implications for us, one of their near neighbors, because it's on the ballot. Uh, for us uh, coming up next go round, next election time. So what do you well, have to say? I, I think I think here's the good news. Because Washington and Colorado have already done it, everyone, they are our empirical data. And in one of the states, I believe it's the state of Washington, you can't grow marijuana in your backyard. In the state of Colorado, you can. Mm-hmm. So now we're beginning to see what are the consequences. What kind of a gray market has been created by having the home grown in the backyard? And, um, and no surprise, Vermont's going to go in this direction. They, they're, they're always a very liberal state. They're the state that they've sort of recognize, yes, the war on drugs probably is a failure. Uh, but the question then becomes, one, how do we regulate it? What mistakes are we going to learn from Washington and Colorado? And can we move the issue forward, protect our kids, raise the revenue, make sure there is some gatekeeping? But, you know, as the, as the head of the ACLU in Vermont said, let's recognize that we already, you know, we, we've legalized other drugs. Let me introduce you to liquor and let me introduce you to cigarettes, mm. you know. And we have figured out how to regulate this, how to deal with this. We can do it with this, quote unquote, drug as well. But I think the really, I think the most provocative issue here is the question of homegrown. If they push the homegrown, the governor will probably veto it. If they're able to sort of figure out that that's not going to be something that's legalized and they can actually use these revenues in, I think, some really important ways, you know, obviously to deal with addiction, to add to the safety. Uh, I think it will move through. And once Vermont does it, it'll pass in Massachusetts with a referendum and New Hampshire will look bizarre because we'll be doing nothing and dragging our knuckles. So I'm just telling you, we'll be surrounded and eventually it'll sort of force the rest of New England to probably move in the same direction. But the homegrown issue, I think, is the most provocative. Well, Paul, you know, we are in Massachusetts dealing with the homegrown issue in this way because we've messed up the, the medical marijuana so much that and left in limbo all these people. There are more licenses and, and retail stores, or, or not retail stores, but, but clinics open for people who need to get it now, but not very many across the state. And so what are people supposed to do? They've obviously gotten it illegally or grown it at home. And we still really haven't answered the question with medical marijuana about what we mean by how much is too much and homegrown in general. This bill says no homegrown, so I guess that answers the question, but I think that's unrealistic, actually. Yeah, I think it's unrealistic as well. And, and as, I, as I was reading the story, I was thinking, okay, well, let's take the kind of 
the loaded idea that it's marijuana out of out of the picture for a second and talk about regulating you know farming in general and and interestingly here in Massachusetts uh, and I'm sure in many other places in the country you know there's a right to farm law where you can actually do this uh, and and generally speaking it it relates to farm stands so if you have a little patch in your backyard and you want to grow and you want to you know come to the side of the street and sell your apples you can do it now it's a little different here i guess um but i don't think legally it's going to be much different and i think that it's going to be a hard sell to tell people that they can't grow it at home i get the intent of it and and we all get the intent of it and let's face it it has nothing to do with morality it has everything to do with they don't want a hole in the bottom of the bucket where the revenue is supposed to come in the only reason this is gaining as much momentum as it is across the country just like casinos is because it's a revenue source so if there's a way for people to get around paying the taxes they're going to figure it out I think you're right. And, uh, Philip, as we know, a few months ago, you were talking about an activist in uh, Rhode Island who was um, presenting some of the issues facing people trying to get medical marijuana. Um, So, as Arnie has said, I think correctly, uh, whichever way these New England states go, and I think Massachusetts will follow Vermont's lead if it passes, uh, that's going to put more pressure on on, uh, Rhode Island, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, maybe it's because I'm a millennial. Maybe it's because I'm a left-leaning guy. I just see all these conversations about legalizing recreational marijuana as just so overdue. Let's do this already. It makes financial sense. It makes social justice sense. It makes political sense. The polling, you know, it's becoming more and more acceptable. It's kind of a political inevitability. So here in Rhode Island, I, I look at this conversation, and on one hand I say, well, I agree with the guy from the local ACLU who points out we still allow people to grow hops and home grow, grow beer, home brew beer. Uh, that seems to me to be a great analogy. Why don't we allow the same for marijuana? But I'm, I'm envious because whatever momentum we had toward legalizing recreational marijuana in Rhode Island seems to have stalled, perhaps because our previous speaker who was a little more open to it is now in federal prison on unrelated <laughs> corruption charges. Um <laughs> And, oh, and Rhode, Rhode Island, Island, it seems, yet again, is going to miss out on this opportunity to be a leader on something, which is probably going to happen anyway. And, it, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that whoever is first in New England is probably going to get an extra economic boost. Um, and it makes real financial sense not only to do this, to legalize it, but to be first because, you know, you'll become kind of a hub. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for Vermont legalizing recreational marijuana. Um and and I just hope Rhode Island can get this done soon, although I don't think it's going to happen. Well, let me put the button on this and say that um, it, it, I, I think there'll probably be pressure on Rhode Island. But um, we had a delegation from our legislature go out to Colorado because much as the success, I'm using that in quotes, of the Colorado legalization is touted, there are some real concerns. And some right. of them have been raised by the changes that uh, Senator Sears wants to um, exactly. uh, implement. And the the uh, offering the product to kids is one that Colorado had really not dealt with the uh, marijuana in, in edibles and in yeah. other ways that it's reaching that, that mm-hmm. population. So, uh, you know, taking it slow and taking a page from Colorado in that you learn from what happened there exactly. is not a bad thing, <laughs> it right. seems and, to us. And, uh, and I'm all for <laughs> regulating edibles. I think when people bring up the kids' argument, uh, there's this premise that kids 
don't have access to marijuana well, now. No, that's right. and the reality is that yeah. they, of course, do, and legalizing it might even uh, make it less accessible to kids. Well, um, well, we'll see. But, I mean, there are some questions to be answered, I think, and and increasingly, by the way, because I'd be remiss if I didn't say this because somebody's screaming at the radio right now. There are many experts who are saying, while there may be medicinal benefits for some, that for developing brains of children, our young people, this is a problem. And yeah. so got to put that on the table. All right. Let's move on. Uh, down your way, Paul, a boat has become a star in a film that's getting a lot of attention. Once again, you guys are just uh, the the heart and soul, I think, of Massachusetts in some way and drawing movie people. And I want to uh, put this in the context of the film tax credit here in Massachusetts and say the final hours, again, bringing money to the state. A- absolutely true. And um, this is a movie. Um, it's actually based on a book by uh, local author uh, Casey Sherman, and, uh, and Mike Tugas. Um, so you ha- if you haven't read the book, pick it up. It's a fascinating read, and uh, it tells the tale of what's considered the greatest small boat rescue in the history of, of the United States Coast Guard. And uh, basically what happened in, in 1952, um, during a, a very serious blizzard, uh, there were two tankers that were traveling around the tip of the Cape, and uh, these were uh, called T2 tankers. And basically, they were built very quickly during World War II. Um, frankly, the construction was rather shoddy, and they had a tendency to split in half. And that's exactly what happened with both vessels. Um, one, the Fort Mercer, was handled by some, some bigger Coast Guard cutters, um, which, which went and, and aided that. The Pendleton, which was not far from the Chatham coast, I mean, it, it was a ways out, but not too, too far, they did not have the advantage of a cutter, so a very small boat, a 36-foot lifeboat, was sent out with a crew that uh, the captain basically said, we're either all coming back or none of us are coming back. And it was a, quite a daring rescue. Um, they did succeed, spoiler alert, and uh, it now is a major motion picture. It's, it's in the uh, theaters uh, this weekend. It begins, and uh, so far I'm hearing good reviews, including from a lot of Coast Guard folks, um, who have previewed the movie. And interestingly, we had uh, just last week um, a, a crew from uh, Air Station Cape Cod had received Distinguished Flying Cross and Air Medals for their valor in rescuing a crew, uh, a sailboat crew, last winter in a similar storm. They were at the red carpet premiere with the stars last night, and they said it's really nice to see some recognition for the things that they do. And Coasties do it very quietly. You might see a helicopter go overhead on a sunny day, but you rarely see them when it's stormy and they're heading out into the breach. Well, a couple things. Uh, this was uh, back in the 50s, and as I understand it, it still remains the single most dangerous or most exciting something uh, rescue ever. Or you know, I forgot what the the hyperbole is, but it's it, it's a true story. And I guess Casey Sherman would appreciate if I called it correctly the finest hours and not the <laughs> final hours. So let me correct oh. that. <laughs> that would be a different movie. Yeah, that would That's be a different movie. Yes, um, but again. Uh, uh, Arnie, one of the things that's still being argued about in Massachusetts right now, because our governor would like to trim back the film tax credit, but we get a lot of business here, and there has yeah. been an ongoing debate in our legislature about maintaining that credit and whether or not, and, and and arguing that it's worth it, because not only do film production companies bring in money, but other 
other people, other kinds of businesses, which I've demonstrated here on this show, uh, benefit as well. That have nothing to do with the movie theaters ostensibly, but they are benefiting. And this kind I, of surprised. thing, this yeah. this kind of thing actually works. You're surprised that it. Well, that, no, no, in the sense yeah. that this is what isn't this called the public-private partnership? Isn't that really what this is? Think about that. <laughs> right. So, no, no. I mean, you call it a tax credit, but yeah. guess what a tax credit is? It's tax dollars. I yes. mean, let's be honest. It's That's a right. tax expenditure. This is the public-private partnership, and I believe your governor is a Republican. Yeah. So I'm sure he would embrace this idea because this is not giving them something necessarily for nothing because look at how much Massachusetts will benefit as a result of that quote-unquote investment. He says we're and giving them too way, much. That's all. Well, <laughs> well, you have uh, – and now you have empirical data. Not everything – I want to remind everything – not everything is successful. In fact, The Finest Hours is about they ran a risk. They ran a risk. They weren't sure they were coming back alive. But they made the decision to run the risk, okay? It's about the human spirit. A lot of times you are going to make an investment, and it doesn't necessarily pay off. But that doesn't mean that you don't on occasion run those risks. And here's a perfect example of risking with this credit and look at the result. Well, I think it's, uh, again, I've said and will continue to say, I think it's really quite beneficial to the area. Um, Philip Isle, there are a number of movies in, in Rhode Island. Do you guys have a film tax credit? I'm not sure. You know, I don't know what the latest is on that. I think we do have something. Uh, I, I don't know what the exact uh, credit system is, though. I mean, I know infamously at the last minute when the 38 studio ship right. is going down, I guess, uh, they were talking about dealing in, in tax credits, but that's the last I've heard of it, and, and it's outside my area of expertise, alas. Well, uh, I, since it's my show, I'll make the last statement on it. And <laughs> I have to say this. <laughs> well, you get Here's what you get. You get tourism. Everybody's going to go look at that boat, which exists um, right. in Massachusetts, you know, and also the area where this happened, because that's kind of stuff I do. I want to go see, well, where did the real thing happen, if it's a real story? We have a local author who benefits from this. We have many other businesses that benefit from this. I say it's a win-win for Massachusetts once again, and uh, other uh, film companies can look around and see what happens and how good it looks when you shoot in Massachusetts. So I'm all about it. Anyway, great for the finest hours, <laughs> not the final hours, the finest hours that everybody can look forward uh, to seeing it. Let me move on to a national story that's blown up in Flint, Michigan, Arnie. And uh, you just pointed us to a piece uh, where they were looking in local communities yeah. to at aging supply lines of water. In Flint, Michigan, people may know, um, the coal community has been poisoned, really, by toxic water, while many of those in the leadership, the governmental leadership, either looked the other way or did nothing. It's a bit big mess, and now they're receiving federal aid. But a lot of those children who have ingested uh, much of this lead uh, water are really permanently damaged. So it's it's an ongoing story, it's, uh, even as we and, speak. And it's a, it's a story of aging infrastructure. Yes. And, and we mm. know that. It's been deteriorating and deteriorating. We keep hearing it. I actually wrote a piece up on my Facebook page about when's the next Flint, okay? Yeah. Because trust mm. me, there is going to be a next Flint. And the reason I sent you the story is that now everyone's getting kind of nervous. And this is a story from the Little Upper Valley, which is, you know, Hartford, Hanover, Lebanon, that kind of area around there. And area officials are now, you know, trying to assure their population that their lead pipes are properly treated. Because it turns out that while they laid the lines in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, they laid, you know, cast iron, but there's lead pipe 
pipe connectors because lead is bendable. Remember right, that's right. that that's his beauty, and and now everyone is saying, "Ugh, you know, when was the last time we replaced him? When was the last time we looked?" So what you're doing is you're seeing officials both going in and assuring people, going in and talking about the regular testing, doing all these things because everyone's beginning to realize that the conversation about an aging infrastructure is also now a conversation about being potentially poisoned. I think and you don't right. want that to happen. And and remember the one thing, I always fight the bottled water people and I keep saying whatever comes out of your tap that's as fine as anything in bottled water. Now I feel like mm. a liar. Okay? Yeah, and yeah. I, Because I, I want to drive people to trust what comes out of their, their faucets. But the story of Flint isn't just about Flint everyone. And now it really is a wake up call. And I'm glad people even in the Upper Valley are beginning to sort of take this look. But we all need to have a come to Jesus moment and realize it was yesterday we should have started repairing it, not yeah. tomorrow. Well, I just want to point out, because I'm going to move on to another story, um, that this story makes clear the all of the steps that need to be taken in terms of testing the water on a consistent mm-hmm. basis so you know where you are. And when you read this, then you realize, well, I'll, shoot, all of this stuff is costly, but uh, way less than it costs now with, uh, for Flint That's officials funny. to replace all of those pipes and you know, really to end well, up taking care for all those children. I mean, it's and not be, to be cynical, yeah. but down the road, you have to imagine there's going to be a monster litigation Absolutely. case uh, that is going to cost I so much even, more I, than I what, even, what it would have cost to just, you know, take the, the cheaper way out. And the public I mean, health costs of caring for those children, the public right. health costs. Of course. It's, and of the course. reparations. Right. It's going to be reparations. Right. That's exactly what this, right. co- this conversation is about. Yeah. I want right. to squeeze in this story about the Providence School kids of uh, right. Philip Isle rallying for ethnic studies. Now, this is something that there was a big wave of people rallying for ethnic studies, Yeah, I would say, in the 60s and the 70s. Um, yeah. These kids are sort of coming back around. I looked at some of the videotape with them. And they're yeah. arguing that the history that uh, involves so many people outside of just white Americans is just not being taught, and they don't know it. Yeah, we've talked about the Providence Student Union uh, before in this show. They're a group of local high school students, delegates from, uh, I think, every one of the major high schools in Providence who work to lobby for and improve conditions in their schools. Everything from uh, the, you know, how far they have to walk to school without getting a free bus pass to the food they're being served to the conditions of the schools. And earlier this month, they held a press conference announcing a new campaign called Our History Matters. And I just want to read something briefly from the petition that they circulated. It says, Providence's students are overwhelmingly 91% people of color, yet our American history textbook dedicates only 55 pages out of 1,192 to people of color. We are not being taught our history in our schools. We need curricula that value our background, which is why we're calling on the Providence School Department to offer ethnic studies classes. Um, There are a lot of amazing quotes that came out uh, from this press conference. It was really inspiring to see these kids out in the cold. One said, I'm Nigerian. I'm Muslim. I'm also an American. My story is not in the history books. Uh, Another student said, I'm Guatemalan and I have no idea about my history. They make it seem like our countries are meaningless. Uh, And perhaps most significant was that the interim school superintendent was there and he was tweeting his full-throated support of this. Um, He tweeted, the Providence Student Union is demanding equity in the curriculum of our PVD schools. I agree. So uh, this looks like, I mean, if you've got the the school superintendent saying yes, um, I mean, it, it looks like something that might really happen. I think, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is that that many of the stories that the students recounted in the rally 
our American history, American history. Now, right. they, it's history. done by people of other ethnicities who are American. Could I just add that um, having the superintendent on board is a great start, and also the story had referenced that a new curriculum director has just started, so perfect opportunity for something like this. And, you know, what I happen to think what the kids are doing is great, because you really, it's so easy to not do what they're doing, and yet what they're going to do for the for the kids who come after them is give them a much more well-rounded understanding of, of our world. And, and just in our little corner of the world, we have the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. And I can tell you around here, people are far more in tune and far more sensitive to Native American issues than probably other places where you don't have a Native American tribe. And, and I think that what these kids are doing is going to accomplish a very similar thing. And I'm going to recommend a field trip just real quickly. The first slavery museum ever, ever yes, in America right. yeah. uh, was just created outside of New Orleans. It's amazing. It's amazing, everyone. So I just want to let you know. Are we taking a field trip? Uh, no. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe the kids can. Yeah. But, but, but I think we uh, should right. because this is important. Yeah, Paul, um, can we wrap up with your um, giving me about 30 seconds on Vern Lux, uh, whom we're mourning. He died recently, and he was a longtime columnist for the Cape Cod Times and also uh, a contributor to WCAI. Vern Locks was was larger than life in so many ways. If you ever saw this guy, you would think he was a former football player, not an ornithologist. He was about 6'6", six, six, around 300 pounds, big dude. And yet he, his passion for birds was much larger than his physical size, and he was infectious. If you didn't care about birds, it didn't matter. You could listen to Vern or read his words forever. He was, he was just a, a gem. He died of cancer last week at the age of 60, a huge loss for us all. All righty. Well, that's going to be it for us, I'm sorry to say, because there's always more I could talk to you all about, and there will be the next time we gather together. So I thank you for joining me um, today. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Philip Isle is a freelance journalist based in Rhode Island. Paul Pronovo, you just heard him, is the editor-in-chief of the Cape Cod Times and executive editor of the Cape Cod Media Group. And Arnie Arneson is host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on New Hampshire's WNHN-FM. Up next, first on the 2016 Massachusetts Legislative Agenda this January, Bike Safety. Boston's bike czar and a local bike activist tell us how the rules of the road might be changing. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar. Under the Radar.